Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Hey, Brad, another lovely day. How's everything going? Everything is going um, better than the alternative, I guess. Although stopping every once in a while is good too. I just mean like permanently stopping. Yes. Pauses. It's like interval training. Pauses, but get, getting back out there and uh, going again is important. Yeah, everything's going fine. Had a nice workout in the garage, although I must say it's getting a little bit tedious doing these solo workouts in the garage. Um, the solo element is just hard, but uh, yeah, here I am talking to you, so I can't complain. Good stuff. Well, we're going to talk about something that might make things a little bit better, which is how to make your brain a better place. What in the world do we mean by that, Brad? Well, what we mean by that is exactly what you said, I think, that our brains are the locus of our consciousness, at least here in the West, how we think about consciousness. And we have some control over what our brains are like. And we often think that we don't, but there is all sorts of ancient wisdom practices and more recently modern science that shows that we can control what our brains look like. That doesn't mean, and this is something that we'll definitely get into, that we can control our thoughts or feelings um, but it does mean that we can control our consciousness or how we react to those thoughts or feelings. Right. It's all about training that mental muscle, as we said in one of our books, that now they all blur together. Uh, but in one of them, we talked about training our mental muscle, which is kind of akin to this, which is, you know, um, how to make sure that our minds and brains are in a good place to accept and take on the world. So let's dive into maybe some of the practices that we use to keep, you know, our mind sharp and healthy and in a good spot. All right. Well, the the first one that I want to make sure that we speak to is mindfulness slash meditation. And I'm going to start conceptually here and then get into the very tactical practice. So the number one thing that I have learned from meditation, and as far as I can glean from the research, the most important insight that you get from meditation is that you have a level of consciousness or awareness or identity that is separate from your thoughts and your feelings. For people that are regular meditators, this is so second nature, they can't even believe I'm saying it. For people that are not regular meditators, this is so outrageous and hard to believe, they can't even believe that I'm saying it. So pre-meditation in my own life and in so many experiments, we go through life thinking that if we feel sad, we're sad. If we're thinking about winning a race, we're thinking about winning a race. If we're thinking about losing a race, we're catastrophizing. We're thinking about losing a race. Those are actually just thoughts and feelings happening. And what meditation teaches you to do 
is to see those thoughts and feelings much like you would see a weather pattern. When you step outside and it's raining, you don't say, I'm the rain. You say, I'm getting rained on. No different than if your mind starts worrying or despairing about something in the past. You don't have to say, I'm despairing. You can say, oh, like I'm getting despaired on. So it's the ability to separate yourself. Again, I mentioned earlier, we can call this consciousness, awareness, identity from any acute experience because then you get to decide what to pay attention to versus what not to. So hearing all of that, I like to simplify it into it's essentially you're just creating some space, right? The space between like stimulus and response, space to think, space to like choose the path you're going on. And, you know, I think that that is how I conceptualize the, this whole mindfulness thing, because I think a lot of times when we talk about this meditation slash mindfulness, um, people get bogged down into the weeds of what it is and what it means and center on the specific practice of meditation slash mindfulness. But when you think of it as what you're trying to accomplish to a degree or what the benefits are um, in your mind, in your brain, creating that space, then it expands beyond just like this specific activity, which I think is very important for people who aren't, um, you know, who who don't like fall into that, hey, I'm, I'm going to spend 20 minutes, 30 minutes sitting on the on the floor going through a meditation practice. I, I agree. I do think that it's important to tease out that you get a big benefit just from having the insight that you are not your thoughts or feelings. And you can listen to this podcast conceptually and understand that, but you don't get that insight. You don't feel it in your bones until you actually um, experience it. And you can experience that the first time meditating for 10 minutes, sometimes it might take a week or two. But that insight generally comes pretty quickly when you meditate. Now, that insight probably goes, I don't know, 50-60% of the way there. Where I would say the daily practice is really, really important is it helps you remember that insight over and over and over again. So the acute effect of meditation, let's say, is really feeling in your bones that you have this ability to create space. You can separate yourself from your thoughts or your feelings. The daily practice just reminds you over and over and over again, if you're anything like me, and I'm going to guess most of the listeners to this show are type A pushers, so you are like me. Uh, The daily practice reminds you that your brain is just going nuts and you don't have to take it so seriously. And I think that's the cumulative benefit of the practice is you can sit for 20 minutes every day for a month straight and never feel more than a minute of calm and clear sightedness. And that's totally fine. Because what you're doing is you're seeing just how messy your brain can be. And that's the key. You're not getting swept up into it. You're seeing it. 
And there's just something about that cumulative effect that then allows you to go through life. And when you have um, a really negative thought or you want to kill someone, not actually, but you know what I mean, rhetorically, um, you don't have to take that stuff so seriously because you're so well practiced at watching your brain do what a human brain does, which is think. Yeah, I mean, that's that's, that's a good insight there and a good good point there. Um, I, I think, all right, so we've got this, this create space and according to Brad's, um, that gets you like 60% of the way if you just have that that awareness, that understanding, which I think, again, you can get very readily through meditation. You can also get it through other places, but it takes like the experience and the self-awareness. And what I mean by that is it's very easy. Again, we're going to play our roles here. I'm going to divert to running. It's very easy to, to experience something that shows you that like you are not your thoughts and feelings when you like go into the depths of fatigue and realize the crazy things that your mind spits out and the, you know, crazy kind of emotions that come with it. But it takes like reflecting, being aware of that to be able to separate that. So it's another step on top of, um, you know, the whole thing that you need to get to, to get to that insight. But I think it's important that it's not just, you know, sitting on and going through meditation, you can have this experience. I think it can occur other places, but it it, it takes like another degree of self-awareness, re- reflection, reflection practice that often we don't um, institute. And the good thing about meditation or the good thing about a mindfulness practice is it essentially forces you to go through that, that experience of creating space and then reflecting on it to a degree um that often other pursuits don't mm-hmm. and in and to get really tactical for listeners that might be new to this sort of thing uh the variety of meditation we're talking about mindfulness steve just alluded to it it simply means that you sit or if sitting's uncomfortable you lie down or if lying down you fall asleep you can even stand up but you you hold a position that is comfortable and alert, and you select an anchor for your attention. And the most common anchor is your breath. So you feel the sensation of your breath in your belly, in your nostrils, in your throat, in your chest, wherever you feel it most. Some people, paying attention to the breath doesn't work out for them. It's angst-provoking. Um, they don't feel it strongly. That's okay. You can pay attention to the sounds around you. You can pay attention to the feeling of your butt on the floor. You can pay attention to the tingling sensation in your hands. Anything works. When you pay attention to an anchor like that, the brain is going to do what the brain does, which is think and feel. And then you, this is the key, you catch yourself thinking and feeling. That's the whole point of the anchor because you leave the anchor and you're like, oh, I'm thinking or feeling. In the minute that you have that insight, I'm thinking or feeling, you're no longer the thought or the feeling. You're the I that is observing it. Uh, so that when we talk about mindfulness meditation, that's the practice. And there are layers and layers. You can get deeper into the breath. You can have these states of total bliss and relaxation. Don't chase those. They're very far and few between. But it's really about having that anchor, realizing how frequently you're drawn away from it, and then learning to come back to it. 
Um, it's really that simple. And for so many people, that's why it's so hard. So many people have this experience when they first meditate, they have all these thoughts and feelings that they get distracted by and they think that they're a terrible meditator. But actually, you're a great meditator. Like that, that is, I've been sitting regularly pretty seriously for three years, a little over three years now. And I would say that the biggest benefit I still get day in and day out is just getting distracted over and over again, but realizing that I'm getting distracted. That's it. <laughs> it's really that piece, right? And and like, you know, I'm going to be the person who branches us out to, you know, beyond just the sitting, but it's, it's, it's no different then let's say you're standing in line, right? In our past non-COVID line life where we stood in lines. Um, but you're standing in line, you're sitting there with your own thoughts, etc. And what happens, you get distracted or you fill that space and time, you grab your phone, you start scrolling, right? And all this like meditation is in, in that instant is, or this mindfulness is being aware of that almost instantaneous jump from like, okay, feeling of, you know, maybe boredom, um, angst of just standing there waiting and jumping to that instant reaction of, oh, I'm going to grab my phone, start scrolling, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this is just example, but like, instead of filling that space with like scrolling, et cetera, it's if you can have that you can have that awareness to understand that like, oh, this is the distraction that I'm going towards. And again, to jump into the other realm that I know, which is running, it's no different in the sport where if you're an expert runner or lifelong runner, etc., you can separate the feelings and sensations you're you're experiencing from the action towards them. And what I mean by that is experienced runners can feel some sort of pain or some sort of fatigue and understand what message is, is create enough space so they can understand what message is being sent, right? If my legs are starting to feel tired, it could mean, hey, I'm running low on energy. I need to take, you know, a goo or some sugar the next next aid stop or whatever it is right you can you can you can create space so you can understand that a novice runner or even an experienced runner coming out of you know coming off injury for example those those signals all get mismatched together so there's no space to separate identify and understand so for instance in my out of shape state like when I'm running along, I have that feel first feeling of fatigue, pain, etc. I don't have the ability to distinguish it. My jump to the next thing is like, oh my gosh, I need to slow down, slow down, like catch my breath, walk if I need to, etc. Like this isn't good. And that's all to me, like mindfulness, not all of it, but that's the big part of mindfulness is, is like just spreading things out a little bit so you can notice when your mind's being pulled towards distraction. So you can notice like what these contrasting thoughts, feelings, sensations, like what the, those are possibly signaling and then be able to like choose which direction you come out of that on. Yeah, and and the only other thing I'd add there is realize the impermanence of all of that stuff. So 
if you, and this is why I think the formal practice of sitting meditation is really, really powerful. And I think you can get a lot of this in sport too. A feeling or a thought rises up. And if you engage with it, you see that it gets stickier. But if you just watch it, and you watch it really closely, and you pay super close attention to it, again, the you different than the thought or feeling, the consciousness, the awareness, that deeper identity, you realize that it's constantly changing. And it ebbs and flows, and it comes and goes. And eventually, most thoughts and feelings fade away on their own. So a really um, good way to toy around with this is if you're somewhat new to meditation, you'll probably experience either back pain or an itch. For some reason, those are the two most common things. And if you scratch the itch, you get relief for about 30 seconds and then it comes back. If you adjust your position, your back might feel better for a minute and then it starts to ache a little bit again. Whereas if you just really pay close attention to the itch or your back without getting too involved in it and without shifting, you realize that that pain or that itch isn't static. It changes second by second and eventually it tends to dissipate. Now, obviously, if you have a herniated disc, you're going to want to adjust your position. I'm just talking about run-of-the-mill discomfort. And that impermanence isn't to create like a Jocko Willenick discipline is freedom type toughness. That impermanence has nothing to do with the pain or the itch. What it has to do with is you lose an enormous race or you don't get the promotion at the office or your book flops, that too will be impermanent. And it allows you to hold things more lightly. And again, for type A driven pushers, the ability to hold things lightly is so important because you can play these two games. Um, there was a book, I think in the early 90s, James Carr's Finite and Infinite Games, right? And in the finite game is the game that you are in where there are winners and losers. That is getting promoted at work, winning the race, hitting the bestseller list. And you play that game really, really hard. But the infinite game is your life. And in the infinite game, it doesn't really matter if you win the race or if you hit the bestseller list or if you get the promotion. And that second part of meditation, holding things lightly, realizing impermanence, lets you play the finite games even harder, paradoxically, because you're not as worried about failing because if you fail, there's more a part of you that realizes that you can hold things lightly. And if this makes no sense at all... I apologize because I'm trying to point at something that's so hard that you really only get like with visceral experience of paying very close attention, not running away from your thoughts and feelings, whether in formal sitting practice or in real life, and do that over and over and over again. And you, you can hold things more lightly. And I want to stress this because it's nuanced, but this doesn't mean that you can't push as hard. If anything, you can push harder because you realize it's not life or death. And if you fail, it's not the end of the world. So Steve, please explain what I just said in a way that might make more sense to people. <laughs> Leave me with the difficult job of making the complex uh, Well, here's the thing in our relationship. you know, When you drop complex science bombs, it's always on me to explain it. So now <laughs> I'm dropping some like wisdom tradition bombs and you have to explain it. Oh, man. Oh, man. The pressure is on, I guess. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know where to where to go or how to explain that to, to a degree. But I think it is like, 
it, to me, it, it, it comes down to if you can see thoughts, feelings, emotions, sensation as like information that you can either take in, you know, accept, just let float by, etc., then you realize that like your ability to push or your ability to perform in that moment is actually increased rather than decreased because it's just, it's just information, right? It's almost like the analogy that I go to is if you're a pilot in, in a cockpit, right? And you're flying this plane with all sorts of, you know, lights and flashing signals and, you know, knobs to turn and read and all that stuff is, you know, in, in the moment of chaos where something might, let's say you're you're trying to land during a very difficult, you know, storm or something like that, you have all these things that are buzzing, flashing, like telling you, you know, where you're at, where your plane is, all that stuff. Um, but the key of a good pilot is being able to take in all of that sensory data, understand what is important in that moment, and what to just let keep flashing, buzzing, whatever. But understanding that, like, if something else starts buzzing and beeping, it might mean, hey, I need to pay attention to that in that moment. And I don't know if the analogy is perfect, but, like, to me, we're talking about you making your brain a better place and mindfulness is a component of that. And I think this is where mindfulness comes into, like, that is what mindfulness allows you to do to grit degree it allows you to speak the same language that like your internal signals are 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 speaking and then have that power to decide like hey is this something worth my attention or is this something i need to let float away like should i pay attention to this you know odometer or is it not very important in the moment like should i scratch this itch in the terms of hey i really need to turn this dial in this moment or is that something that like right now isn't a priority and it doesn't really you know i can just let it go and even if it's annoyingly beeping at me right it's it's being okay with that um, so like, I don't know if that helps or, or not, but like, that's how I conceptualize this thing on like a bigger picture or larger scale. I think it's really helpful, particularly again, for, for those that are, um, not meditators or haven't, haven't had any kind of formal, regular meditation or, or mindfulness practice. And, and, and the only thing I'd add there is that's why I'm like, I, I do meditation myself, but like, one of the things, the reason I think we're harping at this to kind of get across, okay, what is this concept is because I think it's an important concept regardless of, it's a vital concept regardless of whether you want to meditate or, or not, right? And it's something that, that can come across and something you can develop like in a variety of different ways. It's just the, you know, it, the most common practice and probably the most effective to a degree because it addresses it head on is, is actual mindfulness meditation, but you can find roundabout ways. So, so instead of like turn being turned off to like, oh, here's some woo woo on meditation and it's trendy and mindfulness is trendy and all this stuff. 
I think it's it's how, you know, if I'm listening to this as a non-meditator, it's like, well, how do I train that ability or how do I integrate these concepts into into things I'm doing in my life so that I can like create that space so that I can pay attention to like my thoughts, feelings, sensations, but like not be controlled or dictated by them. Yeah. And the meditation is just the practice or a practice because uh, there are others undergirding that. So no different than you can hear someone talk about the proper way to hinge at the hips um, as you un- and unload your dishwasher or the benefits of exercise for walking up the stairs. And you can say, well, I'm just going to really focus when I walk up the stairs or focus on cues when I load the dishwasher. But if you do lunges or you run or you do hinges and deadlifts or whatever, that's like training those muscles in a very focused, deliberate way. And by doing that, the benefits in real life tend to be starker and, um, and more significant. So that's, that's the plug for meditation. Anything is helpful. Zero to one minute, great. One minute to five minutes, great. Five to 10, great. Based on my research into the science and long before the science, um, what some of these ancient wisdom traditions taught, I personally believe that a sweet spot is a regular practice for about 10 to 25 minutes a day. If you can do more, that's great. The reason I find 10 minutes um, to be such a good number is because it gives you the chance of getting to a place that's a little bit deeper than just your brain going nuts. So if you only meditate for a minute or five minutes, there's still huge benefit because as we said in the outset of this conversation, you get to see how crazy your brain is. And just seeing that over and over again helps you remove yourself from it a little bit or at least understand that you're not it. You get that insight. At the 10-minute mark, a lot of people start to have longer durations where their brain's not going nuts. And those are just really nice. You know, this is like where the woo-woo stuff in. You feel connected to something bigger. You feel at peace. You feel calm. Uh, and then your brain starts thinking about pizza or what meeting you have. Or are you going to brush your teeth before or after you shower? Or, oh, crap, did I email Steve back? And then you get more practice of being like, oh, there's thinking, like back to the breath. Um, so that's my plug for meditation. I think that we've we've talked about meditation for the last 25 minutes or so. Um, anything to add on that particular modality? Or should we move on to something that I know is your favorite th- thing, Steve, which is sport? <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I would add is for those who aren't meditators and are listening to this is I would start very simply by saying I'm going to spend time alone in my head and if you start there whether it's going on walks whether it's sitting like alone in your head without like tv gadgets books whatever and start as like, hey, spending some more time alone in my head. And then it's spending time. The next step is spending time alone in my head with something to center or ground me. That could be your breathing. That could be like your attention. It could be like focused on your form of going for a walk, whatever it is. Like that's how I would, I would say is if you're resistant to meditation, start with those two things and then build off of it from there. 
and don't be scared of what you find. Research shows that 80% of our thoughts are negative. We're constantly like worrying about the future or thinking back to the past in maybe a not so positive way. That's why we go out of our way to distract ourselves so much so we don't have to be alone in our head. But once you realize that those are just weather patterns or another example, like shitty ass cable news channels per our podcast from uh, from earlier this this month, or I guess late last month now, you don't have to tune in. And if you don't tune in, you don't feed that fire. So think of those thoughts as, you know, Brett Bayer or whoever the wackadoo on Fox is or Rachel Maddow screaming. And Guess what? You don't have to watch that channel. And over time, if you face those dragons, but you don't feed them, they go away. And then on your walk, you can feel the breeze against your back. Or you can think nothing at all. And man, I said we're going to stop, but I could go on and on about this topic because I think it's so fascinating. The, the thinking nothing at all, it's so funny because a lot of people are like, well, why would I want that? But I have not met a well-adjusted adult that doesn't love and look forward to going to sleep and getting a good night's sleep. And what is a good night's sleep if not escaping the normal thinking process of your mind? So of course, of course, taking a walk and just being free is beautiful. So the ego has this like weird way, and by ego I mean like your thinking mind, it has this weird way of being like, you need me, you need me. If you leave me alone, it's gonna be scary. It's gonna be like death. You're gonna be bored. But the times in our life when we leave the thinking mind behind, we really enjoy sleep, getting into a flow state, like making love. I mean, we talked about this before, but it's just really, really funny how like the thing that we think is terrifying is act or like or unproductive are actually the experiences that we most look forward to in other contexts. That's such a good point. And I think you're right with flow, sleep, etc. I think that all all lines up really well and it's interesting to think about it and like i'm always reminded of that study that found that like people would rather shock themselves than spend like it was something like 10 15 minutes alone in a room by themselves with only their thoughts and it just it just shows the strength of that pull of like oh my gosh i'd rather shock myself so that i'm doing something rather than like spending time alone in my head Yet, if you can get comfortable um, to a degree of doing that, then you open yourself up to these, you know, wonderful experiences. And I think to, uh, again, all the runs that I've had where it's just kind of been me alone in nature and my thoughts just kind of drift away and like all of a sudden, uh, you know, 30 minutes, an hour has gone by and like those are some of the most peaceful moments. So, it's 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 opening yourself up to those experiences by figuring out how to deal with that voice in your head that is afraid of like what is to come if if it's just like your thoughts alone in your head. Yeah. All right, I'm going to attempt to summarize cuz we try to do that here on the pod. Um I'm going to go as far right now as to say three levels of benefit. The first level is creating space between you and your thoughts and feelings. The second level is that ability to hold things more lightly because in a regular practice, day in and day out, you just see how stuff comes and goes and is impermanent in the ability to separate between those finite games and the infinite game. And then the third level of benefit 
are these moments when you do leave the thinking and feeling mind behind and you can just be. And those are the three levels of benefits. And they're nonlinear. And they come and they go. And that last one, the just being one, the more that you want it and the more that you chase it, the less likely you're going to get it. So that one just kind of has to arise on its own. Love it. Summed up well. All right. So now let's talk about... um, You know, initially I said sport, but why don't we just call it like a physical practice because it certainly doesn't have to be a formal sport. Um, All kinds of research shows that moving your body is good for your brain. It is helpful with depression, anxiety, attention deficit disorder. It is helpful to prevent cognitive decline, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, on and on and on. We could go on for hours rehashing all that science Uh, we've written about it a lot. I'd rather not. What I would like to do is kind of go the more Zen direction, Steve, and talk about sport as a way to create that space, not citing necessarily neuroscience studies, but your experience as someone that has had a lifelong physical practice and that coaches lots of individuals with pretty intense physical practices. All right. Taking away my science. It's all good. I'll handle this. Um, So, you know, before that, I would just say that a lot of times we separate, and this will be pretty zen-like, we separate the mind and the body, but it's all the same. So, when we sit there and say, oh, like, we've got all this benefits from this physical practice. Well, part of it is, like, movement is like a brain mind like thing like our body perceives uh, and our body perceives as it moves so the more we move the more we change kind of the reality we live in our perception changes with it so i think that's like an important piece is that it's not just like oh move exercise etc it's like it's actually mental training as well when we go um outside and you know move around so i guess to answer your question on okay from a creating space point in in physical exercise which is something that you know in my case is running i think if you were to ask me we just talked about meditation i just talked about running a lot but like running is my own kind of mental therapy mental um practice and there's a couple reasons for that first is like you get this benefit of being outside and exploring, okay? So, a lot of times we get like routine, routinized into like what we do around the house and going from work to home, et cetera, et cetera. And running is this like freedom to like, especially if you get fit enough to go a long ways, to like explore around. Every, you know, even on the same routes, like I'm looking, seeing, experiencing new things and new trails, new sidewalks, wherever you're going. So there's this exploration that that is wonderful. I think on the space side, what it allows you to do is, especially if you leave the headphones at home, which I highly, highly suggest and recommend, is you have no choice but to either fill that space and that time with something or get comfortable with seeing where your mind goes. Because if you don't, like it's going to be miserable and you'll eventually quit. But if you stick with it, 
like your mind will go to places that you didn't know and you'll your mind will like drift off and have like conversations (laughs) essentially with itself um through runs or you'll go through periods where nothing you're just in the zone and you're just flowing along and i think you know if we think of endurance sport in particular is it provides this wonderful backdrop where you're just kind of thrown into the deep end a little bit and told to like figure out how to swim and thankfully like we're smart enough where we develop different tactics, strategies, acceptance, like shifting attention, et cetera, where it just kind of naturally is trained in our mind and we get better at it. Oh, there's so much to unpack here. Uh, love it. All right. So the first thing that I want to, um, I want to say is that I, too, have a regular physical practice. And mine is lifting weights. And I am trying to, with good form and without getting injured, squat as much, deadlift as much, and bench press as much as possible. That physical practice is very helpful for teaching me how to be with discomfort. It has none of the other benefits of meditation because I am chasing a very concrete, specific goal. What you just described, Steve, is a very different way of moving your body. And I think this is worth teasing out. Because we often hear these debates, is running meditation? Is weightlifting meditation? And my immediate answer is like, no, meditation is meditation. Running is running. Weightlifting is weightlifting. Um, but you know, behind that like kind of snarkiness, I think there are different levels of physical practice. And I think a huge differentiation to make, and I'm curious what, what, whether you agree or not, is pursuing a physical practice with an end goal versus just doing it for the sake of doing it. And I think the latter is much closer to meditation than the former. I think the former can still teach you all kinds of things of being with discomfort. But to me, like my physical practice satisfies my desire to have a concrete goal in like to improve and to go from here to there. Whereas meditation forces me to realize that like here is there. Um, so I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think I think in running and endurance sport it it kind of can provide both to degree. Um and I think it uh, provides both in different areas and I'll 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 give you an example. I think when I am doing a hard interval session or a fatiguing workout, okay? It's more of that like discomfort in making progress, right? It's dealing with discomfort to a degree and making progress and trying to get better and achieve some sort of competency or goal or et cetera. And then there's those periods where it's just like, I'm going out for a run. Sometimes I leave my watch behind and it's just like me out there. And I almost see that as like the meditative state to degree now there's other there's other times where it's okay it's not just me alone it's me with three four five other friends or you know what have you uh athletes i'm training and then it shifts from like hey this this um meditative state on an easy run to more of like a social like belonging filling that belonging state right so i think 
again, the the magic isn't in the sport per se. I think you could have the same, you know, thing doing a variety of exercise or movement, you know, practices. I think it just like varies based on what you're, what you're, you know, you're trying to get out of each session, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I, and I, and I like to separate them as well. Uh, just because like the benefits are quite different. There's not nearly as much research that I'm aware of anyways, linking meditation to improvements in things like dementia or Parkinson's. Exercise, physical practice is in a league of its own there. When it comes to mental health, the and the meditators in the room aren't going to appreciate this, but there is more and more strong evidence linking physical movement with better mental health than meditation. Now, if meditation is a part of therapy and situated in a broader context, then it can be on par with exercise. But if someone's feeling down or anxious and you say, hey, go exercise and go run, go lift weights, go walk even, or hey, go meditate, the person that exercises is going to do a lot better based on research. And Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to just say, so I think that comes back to this this point that I made earlier, which is like we tend to separate mind-body. And even with some of these like mental health, um, you know, issues that we have, but, you know, the, the research on exercise kind of shows that like the reason, reason exercise is probably better is in terms of mental health is like it's an integrated whole that like helps on all sides of less like mental body physical like combination that like allows us to be in a better spot mm-hmm. and they're not and, and with exercise and meditation in particular um they're not exclusive like one is better than none and two is significantly better than one and as you can probably glean from this conversation they actually can complement each other in in many nice ways um but I, I, I think that it's worth pointing out that exercise is equally as powerful, and there's some overlap, but they're really two separate practices um, that can both be super helpful. So like when I now think about just brain hygiene for myself, it is a regular exercise practice, a regular meditation practice, and trying to get good sleep, which I've actually been struggling with. Um, Can't even blame my son. Like, you know, there's seasons and right now I'm in a season where I'm waking up a few times in the middle of the night, not worrying about it too much. It is what it is. Uh, And then there's like community and belonging, which has been hard for everyone this year. But outside of that, like there, and I know I'm jumping kind of to these other things, but there's really not that much. And it can sound like a lot, but a physical practice can be 20 minutes to an hour of exercise. I don't know, four to five, six, if you're lucky, days a week. Meditation we talked about can be anywhere from one minute to two hours. I think like 10 to 20 minutes is a really good sweet spot for people that are committed, but still only 10 to 20 minutes. Um, and then the the sleep and community components, those hopefully are like built into a lifestyle. And and that's it. Like it's not about putting mushrooms in your tea. <laughs> what? There goes my New Year's resolution to drink. We're more never going to get solid sponsorship for this podcast if I keep bashing supplements. 
I know that's where all the all the uh, you know all the money comes from, Brad. You're really being a horrible businessman right now. Yeah. So look at you prioritizing facts and mental health over dollars. Definitely put mushrooms in your omelet, though. Just it's delicious. <laughs> Just the right kind of mushrooms. I um man, total aside, I've I'm, <laughs> my brain. This was like a forty-two minute stretch before I kind of went off the radar, which is good for COVID times. Speaking of brains, my brain is going increasingly crazy. Um, but a mutual friend of ours, Dan John, who is an old-time strength and conditioning coach, like a Rhodes Scholar, also a professor of religion. I mean, he is just a, a Renaissance man. Um, totally out there in the best way possible. And I heard him say something like three months ago that I've been trying to follow because now I'm in like meathead weightlifting mode, which Dan John very much appreciates. Um, I've been having a four to five egg omelet at least five nights a week. Caitlin, my wife, is like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a not so happy participant, but she's letting me do this. And I was worried I wasn't getting enough vegetables. So Dan John said that every morning he goes to a cafe and he orders a five-egg omelet and tells them every vegetable you have in the kitchen, put in the omelet. So that's (laughs) what I've been doing for dinner. Uh, And it's great. I feel really good. And I'm eating tons of vegetables because it's just like an omelet can hold the vegetables. Oh, Um, man. I love it. Um, Sorry, we went from mushroom tea to omelets to Dan John. I'm I'm going to add one Dan John-ism in there because... He sent me an email last week, um, and in it was just this list of Dan John isms that I think is beautiful and um, makes our brain a better a better place. So here here you go. At, this was just at the bottom of his email. Make a difference. Live, love, laugh. Balance work, rest, play, and pray. Enjoy beauty and solitude. Sleep soundly, drink water, eat veggies and protein, walk, wear your seatbelt, don't smoke, floss your teeth, put weights overhead, pick weights off the floor, carry weights, reread great books, say thank you. That is so Dan John. He's like uh he Dan John is special. If you guys if if you haven't been familiarized with Dan John, um, just Google like Dan John Strength Coach. You can probably find his website. Even if you have never thought about strength training or any kind of training, like read a Dan John book. I've I've recommended Jan, Dan John books to my executive coaching clients that like have been wearing suits for the last thirty years of their lives, and they're like, "This is transformative for my life." Um, Dan John, if you're listening, you're a true Zen master. Um, we love you. <laughs> I don't know where to go after that. <laughs> yeah. All right. This was a real, uh, a real hard left turn. So making, making your brain a better place. Clearly, my brain just lost focus. So I, I have a lot of work to go in my own meditation practice. Um, but we're, you know, we're having some fun at the end here. So we talked about meditation. We talked about the, the three benefits of meditation, separating yourself from thoughts and feelings, um, holding things more lightly, and then having the opportunity to experience those states where you, you kind of get to leave your thinking, feeling brain behind altogether. And then we talked about physical practice and exercise and how there is some overlap, but it's actually quite different than meditation in that from a 
what we like to think of as traditional health standpoint, preventing disease, the research for physical activity is stronger, but there's so much power in combining the two because then you get this kind of wise, insight, calm collectiveness from the meditation with more of the physical, psychological, like neurological benefits of the exercise. And there's so much overlap. You put them together, you become a bulletproof person. Um, and that is what I recommend doing. Love it. The only thing, you know, as I'm sitting here listening that I think of, well, what else could help brain health and what else is a quick aside, but it ties into this is I remember, gosh, years ago, our mutual friend, David Epstein mentioned when I asked him, like, what are the, what's the key to like, once you're no longer competitive and running and et cetera. And he passed along, he said, keep doing interval training every once in a while. And the reason he said that was keep some of the difficult things in life, right? And do difficult things. And whether that's in sport, in terms of still doing difficult training, right? Every once in a while, instead of just like easy, then like runs, like, and I think that applies to other things as well as do difficult things, read difficult books, like stress yourself, challenge yourself. As we wrote in Peak Performance, stress plus the rest each equals growth. As if you can do some of that, it will help your brain be in a better place because it prevents you from like, I don't know, it, it, it like if you keep doing some difficult work, it like prevents you from ha- changing your set point to like forget what it's like. It's almost like the the athlete who gets so detrained when he takes time off that when he comes back, he or she comes back and like experiences discomfort for the first time, like a- alarm bells go off like crazy. But if you're at least used to doing difficult things every once in a while, those alarm bells don't go off. Yeah. Okay, boomer. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I, I, I totally agree. I, it, we're aging ourselves because I'm about to summarize what you just said in, in sound like an old person that the kids laugh at. But um, here I go anyways. Hard things are supposed to be hard. Like To me, that's what you just said in a nutshell. Like Not everything's supposed to be easy. Not everything's supposed to be a hack. You want to read an 800-page biography? Guess what? It's going to be hard. Don't try to make it easy. You're just going to be miserable. And that gets back to like the holding things lightly because something can be really hard and you can hold it lightly at the same time. Um, and, and I think like there's like all these paradoxes, but man, when you put these two, these two, like these different things, excuse me, together, that's when your brain becomes a good place because you can be like, Oh, this is really hard and I can laugh at myself versus I want everything to be easier. I'm trying to make this hard thing easy. Um, so like, you know, to get the concrete example, the interval training, yeah, like it's going to be hard. You're going to suffer. But if you've cultivated the ability to hold things lightly, you can kind of laugh at yourself for like, on the one hand, you're doing this thing and it feels really important and it's difficult. And on the other hand, you could be like, why am I putting myself through this? And when you marry those two mindsets, to me, that's when you really get like a good outcome. Love it. I think you're spot on. Way to summarize things, Brad. You know, man, I, I go left, I go right, and I just try to bring us back back into the middle. 
<laughs> and I don't mean politically. Um, <laughs> oh it's Funny man, I've I um yeah no I'll just stop. <laughs> let's let's you know I think this is a good place to wrap things up. Make your brain a better place. Know when it's time to stop. When it's time to end the run, the workout, the discussion etc. That is the last tip and piece of advice we're going to give you for making your brain a better, happier place. Yeah. And um, please, please, please leave a review. Um, give us a five-star rating if you like the show. Uh, even if you don't, give us a five-star rating because it's a nice thing to do. It'll make your brain a better place. Um, and what we really want too is your feedback. So you guys can probably tell we started this podcast off and we had no idea what we're doing. Now we have maybe 5% idea what we're doing. So Steve and I are very solid writers because we edit the shit out of everything that we write. We write multiple, multiple, multiple drafts. Yes, even Steve. I know it's hard to believe the man writes multiple drafts. Um, a podcast is a first draft. Steve hits record and we talk. And then we try to equalize the sound so the quality is high. That's it. So yes, we get off on these crazy tangents and whatnot. We want to hear from you if you're like, ugh, like <laughs> I'm never listening to these guys again. Thank God they write books. Or even worse, ugh, I'm never going to read their books. Or if you actually like it. So please, please, please give us, give us your feedback, both on topics, the quality of the conversation. Do you like our rants? Should we pay someone money to edit them out? Because um, we really want to try to make this show as useful for you as possible. Um, so you can give us feedback by going to www.thegrowtheq.com and um, just navigating over to the contact button and send us a note. And, and the same goes with what is useful and what is not. Because podcasting, you're flying blind to a degree on, on what is relevant in writing. In newsletters, we get feedback every week based on clicks and li- likes and all that that tell us what our audience is interested in is... And we're always going to talk about things that, you know, interest us and we, we find relevant and helpful, but it helps to know, you know, what you guys find helpful so that hopefully we can go deeper on some of those subjects um, if they're, you know, helpful and worthwhile. All right. Well, we will catch you all next Wednesday. Uh, until then, um, make your brain a better place. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.